Hello and welcome to Trademark Belfast, to the second in our series of monthly podcasts, which so far aren't monthly, but she'll try again. I'm here today with uh, Dr. Sean Byers from Trademark and Mel Corrie and Phil. Uh, we're here today to have a discussion broadly around the theme of political education. Um, it's linked to a project we're currently involved in since the last time we spoke to you with the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation in their Brussels office. It's um, a political education blog called brexitblog-rosalux.eu. I'll say that again, brexitblog-rosalux.eu, a website with video inputs and podcasts and quite a few articles now talking about Brexit and the border and the European Union and the Eurozone and Europe generally. And the purpose of the project really is to try and encourage some comradely debate around Brexit and around the future of the EU and the Eurozone because one of the things that's been missing in the last two or three years is that comradely debate based on good analysis and good um, debate. Um, and we think one of the reasons for the paucity of that debate is often the absence of good radical political education on the left. And that's kind of what we wanted to, wanted to talk about today, I suppose. Um, the reason is, is that Trademark Belfast, although we are the anti-sectarian unit of the Irish Labour movement and we deal with sectarianism and aspects of the peace process and racism and uh, that's our kind of core work, over the last while we've developed a bit of a reputation for delivering radical political education and it's our kind of role we feel to try and reintroduce radical political education back into the Labour movement and into working class communities. So Mel, I want to ask you the first question. Why and when did we start doing this work? Why did an anti-sectarian organisation, who, yes, is used to education, but why did we kind of move into the field of political education? When did it happen? Well, as you say, Stevie, we're very firmly rooted in the trade union and labour movement. And um, in the aftermath of the financial uh, crash of 2008 and in the teeth of the what came to be known as the, the Great Recession, people were asking... Um, questions of their workplace reps. Why are we facing cuts to services? Why are our wages under attack? Um, and the, you know they were demanding complex questions of, of, of their workplace reps who weren't equipped to give the answers. They were coming to us because we were, we were there in the education programs and um, it became clear that there was a need for us to, to, uh, to fill that need. I think initially we, we started in around uh, August 2009, um, a period when we were traditionally very quiet. We um, advertised through our social media um, a what we called a political economy school, um, running over the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. Um, we would put on a bit of lunch. There would be no paid release from work, no union expenses. We thought we'll do a one-off. And we had to run three of them in the month of August. It was that, that big a demand. Um, and when we went to the, uh, a number of unions mm. um, at that time um, to tell them of our experience and the feedback started to feed through the movement, then that's when some unions then began to take notice. And what was the, um, what was kind of, don't, don't go into detail now because we'll do that maybe later on or in another podcast, but what was the content, what was some of the content of those first political schools? What kind of questions were we addressing? Well, we were, I suppose, addressing the, the issue of, of um, the system. How does, how, how does economics work? How does the world work? Um, and, um, you know, I suppose traditionally, in the, certainly when I was a young trade unionist, um, it was very much part and parcel of, 
of um, education, maybe in a very ad hoc way, and depending on who was delivering the education and what their political background was, but there was a sense that everything you did in trade union and education had some element of politics running through it. Um, and I suppose a consequence of uh, that uh, Tory sort of new Labour period saw trade union and education change um, away from from political um, uh, from a political purpose to very much a functional uh, um, uh. that's just Sean what does the uh, what does that do, do we follow in do we follow in a strong tradition of political education Mel was suggesting there towards the end that over the last 20 years there's been a significant shift in political education particularly within the labor movement away from what you might call kind of left political economy or certainly understanding capitalism and class and those core what would have been core trade union subjects for discussion uh, and they, they seem to have kind of disappeared over the last 20 years but has there been a strong tradition ever of, of that kind of political education in the labor movement and when i say labor movement we're sitting here in belfast i suppose i'm asking you two questions in terms of that was is there a British tradition or British trade union tradition that exists here in Belfast? And also, what is there an Irish Labour tradition? I know that's a lot to ask in one question, but should mm. give it a go anyway. Yeah, well, for me, these things seem to come in waves, and um, people's interest in political education and the necessity of political education seems to peak at times of political and economic crisis, um, just as in two thousand and eight. Um, we've seen it at other points in history. Um, for me, the high point or the the most interesting point is the late 1920s, early 30s. Um, Ireland's coming out of the Irish Revolutionary period, um, the War of Independence and, and the radicalism that that, that brought. Um, but also it's been hit by the impact of the of the, the Wall Street crash and the, the, the recession, that the economic global recession that, that followed it. And also, um, and also the counter-revolution in Ireland itself in yeah, the 20s. Yeah, well, I mean, so what, what you see is um, a real proliferation of, of workers' educational initiatives, um, radical political education initiatives. There's a start, workers' colleges established in, in Dublin in 1932 by, by communists and left republicans. Um, you see, there's a load of public lectures, um, reading groups established, the left book clubs established in Ireland. Um, so there's a whole lot of stuff happening, and they're discussing the ideas of Connolly and Marx and Engels, and going back to the United Irishmen and the more radical uh, elements within Fenianism. Um, so, so, so there was, a, so there was a radical tradition of political education mm. on the Irish left then in the 30s and forward. In the 30s. I can ask a question: What, what happened to it? Because it. You would argue that it's kind of disappeared. Uh, well, I suppose with, with every sort of political movement um, comes a, a, a counter movement or a counter revolution, and and you know the, that was the conditions that they were operating within. Um, a state clamped down on those activities in the south um, and in the north by the by the unionist state. In the north, you had organisations like the Workers Educational Association, which well, did more like liberal sort of straightforward apolitical education with workers but you also had the national council of labor colleges um that were that were involved in more radical political education with workers and and the and the radical left and of course the radical left in, in belfast uh, undertook its own um political education uh, as well and and the union state clamped down on that um but yeah so the, there's always been a counter uh, 
revolution where there's been uh, any sort of revolutionary activity, and that's particularly been the case in in, in Ireland. I mean, for example, there was a People's College established um, by, by trade unionists in 1948 or something, uh, I think it was, and that was uh, met with uh, the provision of Catholic social teaching in uh, UCC for trade unionists, so that was the part of the response. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a Catholic right-wing response to as well as a state response to to radical political ed- political education in Ireland. I suppose um, the question is um, which one of those traditions and which one of those two movements won out in the end? Or uh, was, it, was there any other flowering of radical political education in the free state after the 1930s and 40s? Well there's always been a, a sort of militant minority that's tried to keep um, those ideas alive, um, but by and large, you know, social partnership won out. It was firmly instituted in the 1940, 19, by 1948. Um, so that was part of the reaction, that was part of the counter-revolution against any, any of those sort of radical ideas. And you can see into the 50s, 60s, 70s, and right through to the 80s with um, the, the official establishment of, of social partnership that um, that those sort of corporatist, um, right-wing and, and Catholic ideas did uh, one night, and that translated into the educational. So, Sean, I wanted to ask you then. Um, you refer to a militant minority trying to keep, if you like, that Marxist tradition alive in the Irish labour movement and indeed in Irish labour education. Did that militant minority survive in the in the north of Ireland? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the uh, the Irish trade union movement, Ireland, and the Irish trade union movement has been insulated from more radical European international influences, or it's insulated itself from those influences. Um, but you saw the growth of uh, a radical political tradition, a radical trade union tradition, and that translated into um, a radical political education uh, within the trade union movement um, coming out of the the uh, growth of the shop stewards movement in the 1940s and 50s in the war industries in, in Belfast and they were by and large communists um, and uh, they were pillars of the community, they were experts in health, housing, education in the global political economy not just in workplace issues um, and they stressed, a, they put a heavy emphasis on on the need for real radical mm-hmm. political education um, and they through into the 1960s, 1970s, and even into the 1980s, some of the individuals that Mel would have encountered and been familiar with and worked alongside. Um, that militant minority, from, mainly from the communist tradition, tried to keep those ideas alive, despite you know, the, the attacks on organised labour and the eventual uh, co-option of organised labour into the state. Yeah, I was going to ask Mel that question, because uh, Mel, you're, you're the oldest person here by some considerable amount, obviously, so... <laughs> You know, Only four years older than yourself. <laughs> yeah, but I look a lot younger than you do. But uh, you came into the trade union, I suppose, in, in the north of Ireland and into that tradition. And I wanted to ask you, did did you recognise that tradition when you were being educated in the early days of your involvement in the trade union movement? And was that militant minority still there in education? And if it was, where did it go? Or is it still there? Or are we it? Yeah, well, I, I suppose I didn't recognise it at the time, but looking back, I can see that. I mean, when I, I was... a uh, a textile worker elected a shop steward and um, sent off to do training and having left school with little meaningful qualif- qualifications and a, a bad attitude towards the process of learning, entering the shop steward's training environment was was a, an eye-opener. Um, it, it, uh, whether it was the style or the content, 
Um, but certainly being in a room with, and it was it was mostly men at that time, um, but learning about things that were relevant to me in my work, and my job as a workplace rep, um, gave me a new perspective on education. Looking back on it now, I can see, you know, that came out of um, the political activity of people like Sean Morrissey, who, um, Sean Morrissey was, had a very austere approach to, to learning, um, not like it is today, where, I mean, it was, Sean Morrissey was a, was a person who understood the political power uh, and the, um, the ability that education has to build power and influence within the workplace, within the trade union movement. You might want to tell listeners who Sean Morrissey was in case they don't know the significance of, of, of that man. Well, Sean Morrissey was a, a um, quite a considerable um, individual with activity stretching back as far as the um, revolutionary workers' groups of 1932. Um, he was active in the Republican movement and the IRA. Uh, he, he was active in the trade union movement. Um, he was denied uh, a position, a full-time position, within the TNG because at that time in the 60s, had a bar on communists taking office. The Transport and General Workers Union. Yes. He um, he also became involved then in, in um, uh, housing issues in Turf Lodge and later on community uh, activities in, after his retirement in uh, the place where um, he, he ended his days in, in Antrim. He was a community activist right up to the end. Um, but he kept that uh, radical political education tradition very much alive within the within the union movement, within yeah. the Transport and General Workers Union. Sean, there's been some suggestion, mainly by me, but others too, that over the last 20, 25 years there's been a kind of um, significant changes within trade union education and that we would argue, whether you, I don't know, I'm not sure whether you agree or not, but we would argue that um, political education, and particularly political economy and understandings of capitalism and class and the history of capitalism, and how it works and how it functions, that those subjects have kind of either disappeared completely or been pushed to the periphery of trade union education. Would you agree with that? Or am I being too harsh? No, well, for a long time that was that, that was true. Um, with the neoliberal turn, the, the turn towards individualism, um, employability and skills, you know, place the onus on the individual to secure a job, um, and trade union education was oriented towards that. Um, and that was in part due to their political defeat, um, uh, but also due to the the withering away of of that sort of Milton minority that we're that we're discussing. Um, so for a long time that was true, and the trade union movement, uh, by and large, focused mainly on that sort of skills based competencies and and um, how to how to represent workers and. Uh, Take a or take a grievance case and um, negotiate pay and conditions and that sort of st- stuff, but not a none of the political stuff that traditionally trade unions would have would have been involved in. And I suppose two thousand and eight really really changed that. Yeah, and I, th- I think I, I agree with you on that one. There's a that, that skills agenda that came in under, I suppose it was under Thatcherism first, but particularly under New Labour, the idea that you know that trade union education would be about almost improving your own CV to some degree mm. and it wasn't about building collective identity or building a, yeah. building a powerful you know, working class movement. Um, so that when the crash did hit in 2008, 
we didn't have the capacity in terms of our analysis, in terms of our the ability of our tutors even and education to respond to the demands and as you said, Mel, the questions that people were putting to us. Um, yeah. So we found ourselves very much on the back foot. Has have things changed over the last ten years? Has there been a sudden rush to educate members in understanding how the world works, or are we still at a very low ebb? Where do you think we are on that one? I think it was was even more insidious than the way you just described. Because I mean, I remember shop stewards making the point to me that it was my role as a tutor to educate the fight out of them. So when they were coming in raw, looking for um, for uh, sort of knowledge and uh, the, the wealth of, or the, the 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 benefit of other people's experience to help them in their fights against the employer, we were teaching them about the law. So, you know, if you want to go out and strike, oh, well, you can't go out and strike because you have to, there's a process to go through for industrial action ballots. It's my responsibility to teach you that. Um, and, you know, even though it was our responsibility to teach that, we always would have said to people, never underestimate the power of an unofficial stoppage. Mm-hmm. You know, never underestimate the power of your collective strength. So I suppose the, I suppose the, the changes to workplace or trade union education went alongside with the servicing model of the trade union movement. The idea of the trade union movement, kind of particularly in Ireland, just became something that serviced its members, looked after its members, represented them, which is all important work, but it stopped, kind of stopped organising, it stopped being militant, it stopped being radical. You can see that with the number of strike days, days lost to strike in Ireland plummeted from the 1980s right the way through to the modern day. Uh, only since 2008 has there been a slight increase. So those two things seem to have gone hand in hand, don't they? The absence of political education and the appearance of this very bureaucratic servicing model. And that, really sure. and um, I suppose the two things that are common to the trade union movement in Britain and Ireland is that partnership ethos that infected the movement and stripped out uh, politics from the trade union movement, from stripped out politics from the, the role of shop stewards um, to the point where they just become grievance councillors. Um, it always struck me as very strange the idea that um, you know, and you can't blame the officials that are in the movement because that's the tradition they've grown up in over the last thirty years. That's all they know, kind of thing. And now suddenly we're saying well, we need to shift and change the way the labour movement operates if it's going to respond to the attacks that were under constantly over the last ten years. But um, it, it, it seemed it, it's a it's a tough one because it's it's like it's like trying to turn a, a tanker at sea, isn't it? Like it's going to take a long time to turn that. Where did the, where did the turn is the turn begun? Has the turn begun? Is there any kind of lightly in the tunnel, Mel. Well, you see, I think one of the reasons for that is um, we did have a long period, apart from the um, the world slump in the in the early 70s and the start of that neoliberal turn, um, for the, from the period since 1945, there was relative um, industrial peace. There was a relative sort of um, acceptance of the social contract, the, the, the compromise between labour and capital. That was the lived experience of most people in the trade union movement. There were very few people who um, remembered the privations of the 1930s. I think the turning point for us is that what happened in 2008 was as bad, or depending on what way you look at it, even worse than what happened in 1929. Um, so it was a shock to the system, and all of a sudden people are asking different questions of their unions than they did previously. Mm-hmm. Um, our work then, I suppose, in terms of political education began here in this very room that we're sitting. It began here, as you said, Mel, in August two thousand nine, and it kind of grew. Where did where did it go next in terms of um, where did, who did we, who invited us in to do some of this work next, Sean? Do you remember? You were here at the time, I think. It was Monday at first, wasn't it? 
Well, there, there, if you think about it, that if at that particular time there were, there were, and there was industrial rest in both jurisdictions in this island. Public sector workers were taking strike action because of the severity of the cuts. So NIPSA were very um, much to the fore in uh, running political schools or trying to integrate us into their core education program. In the south, the industrial unrest was really around retail workers. Um, that was people who were kicking back against tax cuts and arguing for pay raises. Um, and John Douglas, the General Secretary of the Union, I remember him saying, look, you know, when, uh, it, it, when after we had been engaged through the um, um, Brian Forbes, the, the head of communications in Mandate, to, to help improve, I suppose, the political understanding of, of those organisers on the ground. Um, John was making the point, I have a cohort of, of activists here that maybe four or five hundred. What I need is for you to create or to hand me a thousand. Mm -hmm. So it's raising the consciousness levels of of um, people who are already active in the union. That's right. quite a big shift, isn't it, from the traditional uh, our kind of labour approach to trade union design, wasn't it? The idea of a general secretary asking you to create a cohort of militant activists, John. Okay, yeah, of course it was. And that comes back to that question or the idea of the militant minority, mm. you know, the importance of having a strong cohort. It might be a small cohort, a minority within the union um, that is political, it's radical and helps to steer the trade union movement and their, their individual unions in a, in a progressive leftward political direction. Um, as well as helping the the steer society in that direction as well. Of course, it's a big shift. Um, but as Mel says, like two months two thousand and eight hit, um, people started asking questions and they were looking for answers and they're looking for answers that trade union movement can necessarily pr provide. Um, and I think what we're living through is uh, well, people have described it as a crisis of legitimation of the neoliberal order. Um, Whereas the battle of ideas had, had had long been won by by neoliberals by the right, um, that's no longer the case, and people are starting to question it, They're starting to question the order, the system, and and um, that's where political education comes in. But opening up that debate within the labour movement hasn't been easy, has it? You, you you've talked about mandate the retail workers union in the south, and you know, and that idea of minority influence or a militant minority, the small minority within any, any social movement can if it's well organised and kind of push the entire movement in the right direction, which for us is a progressive left direction. Um, but that it was interesting that Mandate, that union that asked us in, I suppose it was nearly seven or eight years ago now we first started working with that union, is that that union also then became, was one of the unions involved in the next major political um, kind of disruption in the Republic of Ireland, which was the Right to Water movement. Because Mandate, along with the Communication Workers Union and Unite, were the three core unions, I suppose, that led that, uh, led that particular... Um, campaign um. well the, the right to water um, movement was really there were there were, uh, there were three pillars to it it was the trade union pillar which was as you say led by you know in principally um, mandate uh, unite in the Republic of Ireland and the CWU Ireland um, but there was also a community element to that which was very um, very much fractured and and I'd argue it was more than an element. I would remember, I remember talking, been in meetings with you, talking about the right to water um, campaign, the right to water disputes, and someone in the meeting said, oh, that'll, that'll fizzle out in a couple of months. And we walked out of the meeting onto the streets of Dublin and there were tens of thousands of people right, yeah. protesting. So it was the community that, mm. I mean, that, that campaign was born in the community. It wasn't mm. born in the labour movement. No. 
lucky enough there were a couple of unions I suppose ready to respond and ready to come in behind that, the community but it was very much a community led initiative but yeah, the point I was trying to get to is we were invited in quite early into that what were we invited in to do Sean? Yeah well did, as you say look, to their credit three well I think it was six unions in total mm-hmm. but three of the big unions out of a total of what, 50, mm-hmm. 50 odd um, weighed in behind um, that that mobilisation of, of communities against the water charges um, and they recognised the need for political education, the need, um, because, I mean, by and large, the people involved in the Right to Water campaign uh, at a community level uh, came didn't have any background in party politics, mm-hmm. no real ideological grounding. Um, quite a few of them, as we detected over, over the course of three years of touring the country, um, had conspiracy theory type politics, um, if not outright fascistic mm-hmm. sort of sort of leanings. Um, so the the right to water unions, to their credit, recognise the need for political education, the need to, to kind um, of frame to, to frame the right to water campaign yeah, within, a, within a left in, framework. Within a yeah, within a left framework, within an international context, um, and in terms of where the system was going and, and, and that this I, battle I, for water wasn't just about our water or a tax it was a, it, was a, it was a battle for the worldwide control of water systems mm, yeah it was a much bigger question um, and, and to provide an ideological framework and a systemic analysis for, for looking at that um, and as a, as, a, as, a, as a model if you like of political education and community education it was quite an expensive model I mean fair enough Unite initially Unite our union paid for most of that work, but also Mandate and CWU um, paid significant amounts of money into that. Uh, and we went everywhere, didn't we? It was across the country. We were in most counties. We were in from Mayo to Cork to even in Westmead at one point, and Dublin, of course, and Donegal. And um, it was a really um, expansive political program of work. Yeah, and it was getting in the community centres and church halls and and all sorts of places, and and um, that's that's what working class political education is supposed to be about mm. working with communities um, uh, as opposed to meeting them where they're at both yeah. both politically and geographically and engaging yeah. with them where they are but then pulling them to, to, to a pull more progressive positions yeah, yeah. it, was a, it was a culture shock and a learning curve for us as well you know if you remember the first session that we did in Dublin where we used to people introducing themselves and you know you get a room full of participants and the introductions take you know 15 minutes and the first one we did was 45 minutes and every person got up and made a speech and the, the other participants clapped. Some of those people had been already been to prison. Some of them had been on hunger strike. Um, so, you know, they were, they, were, uh, they were more developed than we possibly give them credit for. We learned a lot from them about, I suppose, how we manage those, those uh, classes and how we develop them. In terms of um, our work with other late trade union organisations across Europe, we're often asked about that work we did with Right to War in terms of the political education programme because we mm. went to, as usual, we were in communities and it often strikes me when I meet other trade unionists and other left activists in Britain and Europe and they keep referring to these communities and these people and those yeah. communities because they have no presence in them anymore, because they're not, they're not of the people anymore. And I think that's, a, that's one of the things we can offer in terms of that particular programme of work. But, and again, it's only been a small number of, of trade unions who have made a genuine attempt to bridge that gap, mm. to reconnect with communities and re-establish their presence in communities. And it comes back to the, the idea of, of shop stewards, of trade union activists, 
uh, and community activists being pillars of their community and understand how the world works. But people often ask that question of, you know, you know what, what's the answer? What's the answer for the left to organise better across Europe? What's the answer for the left? What do we do? And we say, well, you know, just go and speak to people. Go mm. and talk to people. Run classes with people. Be in, be in communities. Use your significant resources, and they have significant resources, to educate the working class. But it doesn't... Well, people are listening to it, but they seem to be, I don't know, they seem to be stuck. There seems to be a barrier or something, and... I know that from talking to people across Europe, it's often now the case is they're just simply not in those communities anymore. They're either in the academy, they're either in the trade unions, which are kind of institutions that are separated out from communities, working class communities, increasingly immiserated communities, precarious communities, migrant communities, and there seems to be a gap appearing there. And trade unions and other left parties seem to be kind of paralysed almost. I don't know how to, how well, to do it anymore. Yeah, in, in the past, and there's nothing new under the sun here. You're talking about getting into communities and talking to people yeah, and organising people. It's, that's right. It's all it's all been done before. In the past, for example, if you had a community issue um, that the community were getting exercised about, the first person they would have went to for advice and guidance would have been the local shop steward in the big factory that serviced that community. Um, and th- th- that meant that that person had to be on their toes in terms of uh, you know, th- that link between um, workplaces and communities was very, very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that has broken apart as a consequence of of the neoliberal... Was that, was that Right to Water political education programme, was it successful in any way? Could you call it successful? How do you measure it, I suppose? It, it was successful in the sense that it happened, I suppose, and it was a, a big piece of work, but... Were there any positive outcomes to it, or was it a, was it a waste of time? No, of course it was successful. You up and down the country, you you could you could witness people whether it was on the TV. I mean, there was no greater feeling than watching someone who had been on one of our courses, someone we had engaged with, uh, who instinctively knew something was wrong and was fed up and angry, but didn't have the 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 framework or the, the, language, the language to ar- articulate it um, but seeing them on TV they making very confident arguments against mm. the, the privatisation of water and about the, the wider political battles um, and we saw that down the country and um, we've seen the emergence of some real um, proactive um, confident political activists yeah but, but what happened but unfortunately it stopped and that was probably a mistake on our part as well, I suppose, or on part of the unions there to, to kind of to bring that particular piece of work to a, to an end because it um, that idea of unions having links to villages and communities and across Ireland is something that is a it's it's you know you're you're, re, you're reinventing something that was done in the past. If you want to create a broad left move, if you want to create an organised working class, it means organising them and it means being out amongst the people. But well, the pr- the, the problem for for trade unions is that when, when you educate members, then that prompts uncomfortable questions. And trade unions are really being confronted with um, questions that they've maybe run away from for for quite some time. Things like the environment mm-hmm. or the fact that maybe um, members, uh, and of course trade unions exist to defend and promote members' interests. Um, but, you know, what about industries that are um, outdated or industries that are unethical? And we have tens of thousands of trade union members and in the arms industry, servicing um, death across the world. How do we confront that? Um, how do we confront environmental degradation? How do we get trade unions to take those issues seriously? Education throws up all of those questions. Yeah, I, think in, yeah. I think around 2016, that was sort of the high point of the Right to Water campaign. There seemed to be an opportunity to, to begin 
shifting things in a more progressive direction, shifting the political context mm-hmm. uh, in a more uh, progressive direction. Um, and a lot of people were sort of disillusioned with the outcome of that. Um, but I think tra- oh, the, with trading, the, right, with the right to change. The right to change, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think people, including ourselves, have to understand that it'll take much longer than that. Mm. You know, the, the necessary changes that need to take place in society will require intergenerational engagement with people and, and building those working-class institutions and working-class movements over a period of 10, 15 years. Because um, mm. it, it took 30 years for the neoliberal, um, for neoliberals to... to um, Cement there, and, and that was, and and that was with the support that. of capital and the state. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If, so if we, if it has to be understood as a much longer term process, a longer term engagement to rebuild the connections between the trade union movement with com- and communities with pro- progressive political forces, and to build up those institutions over a longer time, um, and to I build the, to build asked, the consciousness as well. Well, for, I suppose someone asked, do we do we have that time? This is the issue, I suppose. I mean, I can understand people's eagerness and people's enthusiasm to want to get things done immediately, but, you know, if you look at the IPCC report from last year and we have 12 years to prevent, you know, runaway climate change and we've seen climate breakdown happening around us, there has been, I suppose, a a significant shift in the zeitgeist over the last year or year and a half, I think, in terms of that. People are realising now for the first time, and this is why political education becomes even more important, your point, Mel, is that uh, all of those questions are now becoming... We're not introducing those questions. They've been asked of us now. Yeah. What about this and what about that? What's a Green New Deal? What's a, what's a radical Green New Deal? What's a just transition? And how does a trade union play its partner? So political education and talking about very complex economic issues is, should be and is becoming central to how the left organises itself and talks and, um, about these issues. And for us, a lot of the most interesting stuff seems to be happening in Britain or in around the Labour Party and, and well yeah if you, think of, if you think of the, the speed at which that's happened I mean we all know about the, the kind of the accident that put Corbyn ahead of yeah. Labour Party and it was an accident but nonetheless after that accident happened the speed at which that movement has grown has been um, fascinating to watch uh, interesting to watch as well and we've been lucky enough to be to be involved very much on the periphery of that of course as well because um, how did that come about? I think it was uh, well, it was through Unite, through our union. One of the benefits of being a member of Unite, of course, as we all know so well, is that although we're organised on an all-island basis through you know through the ICTU, we belong to a British-based union. Our head office is in London, so and through our work with the Right to Water movement, actually, we were invited to speak at the Durham Miners Gala, which is a fantastic um, event. But the Unite have a political school here, and we were asked to go over and do a presentation in 2016, I think it was, as you said, so one of the height of the Right to Water. Um, and we just went over and gave a, a brief one-hour session on political economy, on left political economy, why we need to do more work around economics and politics and went down a tree. And since then, we've been over in, in, in Britain quite a lot, working with Momentum, working with Unite particularly. And next week, we're over again, working with uh, Unite, working with um, the Labour Party. We're at the Labour Party Youth Political School in Birmingham next next week. Again, talking about the need for left political economy. And it's... It's, it's fascinating to see actually because in the last six months whereas what we was, we thought what we were saying was quite radical we've been overtaken now by young people coming forward who are saying things far more radical than anything we've got to offer you know, they're kind of, mm. and I'm, I'm loving that so you know, you're making yourself almost obsolete because younger people are coming through now talking about not just a radical Green New Deal but the need for a planned economy the need for economic democracy the need for economic control of all aspects of the economy including banking and green banking and um, you know, cooperative movements and so on and so forth. So, um, the radical there's a radical bubbling up now. It's kind of what we've been waiting for, 
So I think um, I think we could see things change quite radically in terms of political education, particularly over the water. Here in Ireland, less so. That's not to say it won't happen, and we've got to keep plugging away doing that, I suppose. Yeah. You know? well, the debate definitely has shifted very quickly from um, a critique of neoliberalism and an understanding mm. that you know that it's that it's coming coming to an end. Um, but what's to, next? To, yeah, to what's next, to alternatives. Yeah, it's, shift it very quickly. It's funny, in all the debates we've had with um, with the unions, particularly even here in Ireland, but over the water as well as, uh, yes, neoliberals are very good, we all understand that, but what's the alternative? Mm. And how do you build it? And what might it look like? And that's a fascinating period to be in, I think. So we've got to sharpen our tools. We've mm -hmm. got to go back and do our studies and research because we've been asked to go over to Ruskin College in Oxford to deliver a four-day political school on alternatives to neoliberal capitalism. So that means kind of almost like inventing what will socialism look like. Um, and yeah. that's something, as we know, that if you consider that socialism is an experiment and we constantly keep to address our hypothesis, as Bourdieu said, we're kind of constantly trying to find out what it is and we're going to be in the period for the next 10 or 20 years when we may see some serious experiments in that direction. Mm. Hopefully. Uh, will it see the socialism or... Barbarism. And with that quote from <laughs> Rosa Luxemburg, we'll bring this to an end. Thanks very much, lads. 35 minutes on the button, not too bad. Um, if you're tuning in again to our third series, um, our, thir our, our third sorry podcast of this series, we will be looking at the content of political economy, what it is you do when you get punters into a room. And we're also going to be having discussions with some people involved in political education over in the Labour movement in London. So thanks very much for listening. Slava for